welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. So, the title of my message is this. When life gets foggy, turn to the person next to you and say foggy. When life gets foggy. What do I mean by that? I, I mean when you can't navigate your way through the midst of life and you get numb and overwhelmed. Anyone ever felt like that from time to time? When life gets foggy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul, the writer of this letter to the church in Corinth, says, We are co-workers with God And we are God's field. He's using a field as a metaphor for the church. And as with all fields, they need tending and caring for. They need ploughing and and, and reaping and sowing. There's a work that's needed in a field. And he's using this metaphor of a field to describe who we are as the church. The church needs tending. We need tending. But it's also a metaphor that can be used for every avenue and every sphere of life. Marriage is like a field. Family is like a field. Business is like a field. They all need tending. You can't just get married and from that moment you are married, everything just takes care of itself. No, that marriage needs taking care of. And just like your garden that you have, once you get married, it needs tending. And I don't know if you've ever on a beautiful spring day as we've been able to do recently, get out in the garden, pull up the weeds and it looks fantastic again. But guess what? The weeds come up, then you've got to tend it again. And you pull up all the weeds, you think, fantastic, it's great. You mow the lawn, it looks immaculate. Two weeks later, guess what? You've got to tend it again. That's marriage. That's family. That's business. That's church. That's life. That's life. And here's the thing I've learned. In the busyness of life, in the busyness of tending the church and tending our ministry and and tending our families and tending our marriage and tending our business and tending our homework and tending all these things, we forget to tend our own souls. We forget to tend ourselves. We tend to neglect ourselves. And we tend to neglect the soil of our soul. Little wonder life gets foggy. Because if you're not right, it won't be right. And that's why we take times as a church to have specialised meetings, like a men's meeting, And like our Significant Women's Conference, this is an opportunity for you to come away from the busyness of motherhood. Come away from the busyness of being a wife. Come away from the busyness of being involved in a business. Come away from the busyness of homemaking, where we can saturate our souls. That's the purpose of these conferences that we put on. And I want to read to you from Psalm 42. It was written by the sons of Korah. And they obviously experienced what we experience today. It's amazing. To think that the Bible is an old book that's irrelevant is so untrue. 
This was written thousands of years ago, and yet as I read it, you're going to see, man, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what I've experienced in 2013. That's how relevant the Word of God is. And so if you have your Bibles, open them. If you have your iPods, open them. If you don't, look on the screen and follow with me. Psalm 42, reading the first nine verses. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Now, all of us who have been Christians for a number of years are thinking of a song right now. Isn't that right, Gabe and Ethan? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Amen. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan to the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs His love. At night, His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? The author of this particular psalm is talking about the saturation of his soul. In other words, he's not talking about a depleted soul that's so empty and so dry, quite the opposite. He's talking about a soul that is so full of stuff, full of worry, full of hurt, full of pain, full of concern. Am I talking to the right people here tonight? This is like a cup that's full to overflowing. Essentially saying, if there's one more thing, I just can't take another thing. Anyone ever felt like that? That's what this psalm is saying. My soul is full and as a result, my life is foggy. I can't think. I can't feel. My life is just too hectic, just too full. What I want to talk about tonight is a problem and a situation that we all face. But as always, I don't come with a magic wand. This is not a problem to be solved so much as a tension to be managed. I would love to tell you I have the answer for you so that this never happens again in your life. I just don't. I don't have an answer to solve this problem. But I think what I've got to share from the Word of God tonight 
will help you manage these moments as they come and go in our lives. In actual fact, I think that is more accurate of Christian principles than just wanting a one-off answer all the time. What do I have to do to keep my wife happy? As if there's a one-off answer for that. My answer to that is whatever you had to do to get the woman, keep doing for the rest of your days. And so this is not a problem to be solved such as a tension to be managed. You got it? And so what I want to do is look at some helpful things from this text today to help us manage the tension of the realities that we face. Because if you're married and you have kids and you have a job and you put your hand up for some form of ministry, that brings pressure, that brings tension. And that tension has to be managed. We don't want to just run away from it all and give up on it all. We want to be able to manage the tension that comes as a result of saying yes to marriage. Yes to children, yes to work, and yes to God. Someone once said that feelings are a wonderful servant, but a cruel master. And so feelings are wonderful. Without feelings, we wouldn't feel the joy and the happiness and the excitement and the passion of the things that we love. Feelings are good. Turn to the person next and say, feelings are good. They're an incredible servant, but they are a cruel master. Which means if we allow our feelings to be the master of our lives, we're going to get ourselves into oh so much trouble. So many today make all their decisions based upon how they feel. Their feelings have become their Lord and master. And Jesus came to set us free from that tyranny. Feelings are not a good master. A wonderful servant, but a terrible master. I remember growing up, and it may have been Paul's illustration, I'm not too sure, but we were taught as young Christians growing up that you have to manage feelings and the Word of God. It's both and, but you've got to put the Word of God first. And I remember the illustration given of a train track. And a train on that track. It must have been your illustration, Paul, because you love trains. He said, it's the Word of God that's in the front of the carriage. And it's the feelings that are in the carriages behind the Word of God. Our feelings must follow the Word of God, not our, the Word of God follow our feelings. And so I'll say it one more time. Feelings are a wonderful servant, but a cruel master. So what can we do by way of practicality in tending our soul. There's four things I want to look at tonight and then maybe spend just a little bit of time doing exactly what we've talked about here tonight. The first one is simply this. We need to pour out our soul. The writer of this psalm talks about how he pours out his soul. This is where it starts. We need to empty our soul 
of all the fullness that's come in. You'll see many of the Psalms, particularly the ones David writes, it's like, God, where are you? God, I've had enough. God, I want to die. God, I want to go home. God, go out. <laughs> That's emptying a soul. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I've had enough. I want to give up. I want to give in. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I want to eat worms. <laughs> pouring out our souls, just getting it off our chest. The writer of the psalm says, I pour out my soul. When's the last time you just poured out your soul? Or you just sucked it up? You. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when you breathe, you've got to breathe in and out? There's an inhale and exhale. If you don't exhale, you're going to die. <laughs> Write that down. That's deep. You've got to do a lot of Bible college to know these things. But you just practice with me. Like, okay, take, just exhale, exhale. <sighs> breathe in, breathe in, breathe in. Keep breathing in, just keep breathing in. Don't exhale, keep breathing in. Suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. That's what we've been told. Suck it up, just suck it up, suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. I don't suck it up, suck it up. I've had it, suck it up, suck it up. You can't, you'll die. You can't keep sucking it up. There comes a time you've got to blurt. You've got to get it off your chest. People who keep sucking up turn out to be axe murderers. You know that. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. But seriously, there's got to come a time where we just get things off our chest. Got to pour out your soul. Let's be honest, right or wrong. When, for those of us who are, who are Honest enough to admit it, having done that, how many feel better? It's a principle, I pour out my soul. And so the writer of this particular psalm says, I pour out my soul. There is a time to suck it up. There is a time to be quiet. But there's also a time to pour out your soul. Pour out your fears, pour out your thoughts, pour out your emotion. Because here's the thing, God knows you're thinking it anyway. It's not like you're having a rant and God says, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. <laughs> See, we have a picture of God as this old guy with a long beard, falling asleep like... And then when someone has a rant, you go, what was that? What? what? No, no, the Bible says, before we even have a thought, he knows it's already there. So it's best just to get it off our chest and pour out our soul. Now, if we just had to stop there, many of us would be doing okay, because some of us are really good at that. Some of us just do it every day of our lives. But the author of this psalm goes on, which brings me to our second point, and that is we need to listen 
to our soul. Not only do we need to pour out our soul, but we need to listen to our soul. And probably the best way to listen to our soul is to ask our soul questions. In other words, what is saturating my soul? What is stealing my joy? Specifically, what, what is it that's actually stealing my joy? What is it that I'm worried about? I'm worried, I'm stressed. Okay, what are you worried about? Listen to your soul. What are you stressed about? So many people, oh, I'm stressed, I'm busy, I'm stressed. Yeah, but okay, what are you stressed about? And while there's many things to be stressed about in this life, I want to just highlight four areas And it may be helpful in helping us place our thoughts when listening to our soul. Particularly in the area of stress. Four areas of stress that I think is going to help us identify certain areas in our life. First one is a resource deficiency stress. A resource deficiency stress. In other words, I'm stressed because I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough knowledge. These things cause stress. But if we understand where the stress is coming from, it's going to be more helpful in knowing how to deal with it. As opposed to saying, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Okay, what are you stressed about? Why are you stressed? Because if you're stressed about finances, we can look at your budget. We can look at your spending. And we can help reduce some stress. If you're stressed about, I just don't, I just don't know enough. Well, well, we can look about getting some resource to fill your mind, to help you with your exams. And all of a sudden, I can do that. But while it's just this stress, ethereal, nebulous, out there somewhere, it just it causes more stress. It's like the stress we have causes more stress. I think I'm stressed because of my stress. And the reason that caused my stress was my stress in my first place. So it's like, where did the stress come from? Is it a resource deficient stress? Is it a relational stress? This is a big one for many people. People don't want to be alone. People don't want to be in relationships. It's kind of like, women can't live with them, can't live without them. That's why we have real men, to answer questions like that. (laughs) Because most men have said that at one time or another. And you can't go around saying, women, can't live with them, can't live. What a a place to live. Well, where are you going to live then? If you can't live with them, can't live without them, what are you going to do, kill all the women? But then you're going to find, just, (laughs) and then when you've done all that, then you realize, oh, I can't live without them either. So, you know, like, what? What? That just does your head in. Relational stress, the curse of comparison. My friends have more than I do. My friends are fitter than I am. They're better looking than I am. Whatever. Confronting our friends. All these things bring stress. And so maybe your stress is more relational than it is resource deficient. 
And if we know that, then we've got an avenue to deal with. Some people have friends and their friends are doing things and saying things that are ungodly and unhelpful and, 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 and you're the friend that's in the middle of them and, and, and now you're the one who's got some truth that can help them. And, but I feel awkward in speaking to them because you know, I don't want to lose the friendship, but it brings stress. But if we realize that that's your problem, when we get some education around what you need to do to help in that area. So, for example, if your stress is relational and it's because of confrontation, you can get some books to help you with that. It could be a convictional stress. What's it going to cost me? What's it going to cost me? You know, there's a lot of young men who'd love to be married, but they have convictional stress because I do want to get married. Don't get me wrong, I do. I love girls. I, I want to get married one day, but I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm ready to pay the price. And it's a convictional stress. And we kid ourselves, ah, oh, we're just young, we've got plenty of time, and the years go by, and then you're 25, and then 30, and 30. Ah, oh, I'm still young, I've got plenty of time, and you're 40. I've got plenty of time, and that's cool. But maybe the years are ticking away because you're talking yourself out of doing something because your stress is coming from the convictions of what this is going to cost me. I've preached many great messages. And people have acknowledged they really appreciated it and yet never put it into practice. Why? Because it's going to cost something. It actually gets hard to come to church Particularly a church like this one, and there's other great churches like this one where they're preaching truth, and you come under conviction, and to not respond to that conviction, it gets hard to stay in church. It does. Hence why there is some movement in the body of Christ right around the world. It gets tough. But at least if we know that's where our stress is, it's helpful. And the last one I want to highlight is simply the anticipatory stress. And that is the what if... What if I lose my job? So we can have a perfectly good job that pays really well, but we live as if we might lose it tomorrow. And we never enjoy what we have because of what might happen. We never really enjoy life like we could because we just worry about everything. And then we go around putting things on people. You know, for, for the mums out there, and, and dads are guilty of this too, but to a lesser degree, it might be a cold day, wind's out, and, 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 and all of a sudden the kids are playing, they're in their t-shirts, they're running around having the time of their lives. The last thing they want to do is put a jumper on. But because mum's cold, they're saying, come here, Johnny, put your jacket on. And they're chasing this, Johnny doesn't want the jacket. But we're worried, you might get a cold, you might this, you might that. You might get hit by a bus. So I've got special padding in this jacket. Come on, I mean, there's a whole thing just like. We say, make sure you've got your clean underwear on just in case something bad happens. And we put our stress onto other people because of what if. And if we understand where our stress is, we can get the necessary help we need.
which is far better than saying, I'm stressed. And even if you're stressed about all four, then you can still break it down and look at all of them one at a time. And so when you understand what your stress is, it's good to know what some of the results of our stress are. In other words, how do other people experience your stress? It'd be a good question to ask. There's usually two extremes how people model their stress. It's usually seen in the valleys, people hiding in the valley, or exploding like a volcano. You've either got valleys or volcanoes. That's how people usually express their stress. The volcanoes, me, are easier to pick. I've told this story many times, and everyone seems to get a laugh at every time I tell it, but a few years ago when I went to holiday and I went to Bondi Beach, see that murmuring? For those of you who are visiting for the first time, people know where I'm going. I would love to say this happened in my teenage years. Now, this happened about four or five years ago. Six years ago it happened. And what had happened, we'd had a busy lead up to Christmas. I didn't know this. This is hindsight talking. This is me putting this into practice that I can tell the story today. Long story short, went on holiday, went to Sydney. Our friends put us up in their home and they gave us their car to use. He bought me a gym pass. It was an amazing opportunity. Got to go to Bondi Beach on my second day of my holiday. Mistake number one. We pack, uh, we get all set up, got all the oil on and, and, and the towels down and the kids are set, umbrellas up, eskies there. We are set for the day on one of the most iconic beaches in Australia. It's going to be a great day. I deserve this. I've worked hard. This is my moment. Which created a moment for our kids. They, they weren't having as much fun as I was and they didn't like the sand. They didn't like the salt. My eyes are stinging. I don't like the sand. They just started complaining. Needless to say, my reaction was not warranted. And I lost it. You know, talking about volcanoes, this was like a Mount Vesuvius, this was like a tsunami, this was like a tidal wave, this was like a hurricane, this was like all of them at once. And I just, for some reason, just start shouting at the top of my voice. I don't care who hears me. I mean, Kath's embarrassed. The kids are just shocked. And all I can get out of my mouth is, I can't believe it. That's all I'm saying at the top. I can't believe it. I'm just just shouting, I can't believe it. By God's grace, Bondi Rescue was not filming that day. (laughs) But had they been, I had something to tell them too. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I remember grabbing this umbrella and I was using it like a weapon. I was just stomping. You know when someone walks past and they kick sand on you, there's nothing more annoying? Well, and then even when it's accidentally, I wasn't being accidental. I was just kicking sand. I was picking a fight. I was ready to stick this umbrella where the sun don't shine, get out of my way, because I can't believe it. <laughs> this is not a valley moment. This is not Tony retreating, sulking, hiding away. This is me picking a fight with the whole Bondi Beach. There's about 30,000 people. I'm going, bring it. (laughs) Obviously, 
It wasn't my finest moment. Obviously, there was a problem. I remember that night having to humble myself, apologize to my kids. I remember getting down at their level on my knees and again, parenting 101 here, got down to their level and I said, kids, I am so sorry. Then I asked, will you forgive me? See, this is the gospel being modeled to them. It's not just enough to say sorry. You've got to ask for forgiveness. I said, will you forgive me? So they all looked at me like... But you know what, as I, as I was thinking about that moment and listening to my soul, obviously my behavior wasn't warranted. It wasn't good behavior. That's a given. But I started asking myself, what? but why? It's not normal. I don't do that often. And as a result of that moment, listening to my soul, every time I go on holiday, particularly at the end of the year, I take a few days for myself to unwind where our kids don't expect anything from me. We've put a procedure in place because I was able to listen to my soul from that terrible moment. And that moment that I believe was designed by the enemy to take me out became a teaching moment to make me a better person. God is working all things together for the good for those that love him according to his purpose. Thank God for that. P.S. Thank to Jesus that Bondi rescue. <laughs> I mean, seriously, can you imagine what they would have done with that? Have you ever watched Bondi rescue? They make stories out of nothing. Some guy, you know, loses his wallet, but he didn't actually lose it. He just misplaced it. And it's like national news. Like, imagine what they could have done with my story. So, how do you respond? How do you deal with your stress? When I bent, bent down to my kids and apologized, this is something else I did. And I want you to get this. I wanted to take out of their head anything that may have been put in their head by my behavior. I said, I want you to know that ministry did not do this to me. Take that out of their head. I said, I want you to know that marriage did not do this to me. Take that out of their head. I said, I want you to know being a parent didn't do this to me. Take that out of their head. This is dad being really silly. This is dad being really undisciplined. This is dad's fault, not yours, not your mum's, not the church's fault. It's not God's fault. This is my fault. I'm tired of pastor's kids hating ministry because of what they think ministry did to their parents. I'm tired of Christians hating ministry because of what they think ministry did to them. Ministry doesn't do anything to you. Ministry is awesome. Jesus is awesome. People don't want to get married today and commit because they think, oh, I've seen my mum and dad and I saw what marriage did. But marriage didn't do that. Selfishness did. Yeah. That's what I love about preaching because I have these little notes and that's my preparation. 
And I get really excited. I said, Lord, where are we going to go tonight? Because I always know we're going to go somewhere that I never planned. And this is one of those moments right now. This is the God moment that, 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 I, that thrills my heart when I preach. These, these are my thoughts. But then there's this God. God's always wanting to break in. And he's breaking in right now. And he's speaking to people right now. Stop blaming your husband. Stop blaming your wife. Stop blaming your children. Stop blaming your pastor. Stop blaming the church. Stop blaming God. Listen to your soul. It's a lot easier to blame the pastor, blame the church, blame the wife, than to stop and take responsibility for your own soul. Even one of the, ro- uh, the robbers that was crucified with Jesus had enough now to say, well, I deserve this. Jesus was crucified with a robber to his right and a robber to his left. And one of them says, I, I, hey, you, stop abusing this guy. We deserve this. We did the wrong things, not like this guy. This guy is innocent. And Jesus recognised the ownership of a repentant heart. And he says, today... Because of your act of repentance, taking ownership for your own sin and your own actions, you've got to pass to heaven. That's where it starts. Change always starts. And that's what repentance is. It's a 180 degree turnaround. It always starts with ownership. Always starts with ownership. You'll never get out of the fogginess when you do the blame game. Ministry never made you the miserable person you are. Marriage never made you the miserable person you are. Kids will never make you the miserable person some people become. If we can listen to our souls and take ownership of our actions, it's the beginning of an incredible change of events. Which brings me to my third point. You've got to speak to your soul. We've got to pour out our soul. We've got to listen to our soul. Then we've got to speak to our soul. My question is, do you listen to your soul more than you speak to it? See, this is a progressive thought. It starts with pouring out your soul. Some of you, many of you have got that down. The blurting, the whinging, the complaining, you've got that down. That's fine. That's where it starts. But then you've got to listen. And then you've got to stop listening. Then you've got to start speaking. You've got to start declaring. You've got to start prophesying. You've got to start speaking the promises of God over your life. You've got to grab the soul by the scruff of the neck and speak to it. The author of this psalm says, Oh my soul, why are you so downcast? What's going on? You're better than that. You're bigger than that. Come on. You've got to speak to your soul. We've got to train our souls to magnify what is true above what is honest. You've got to get this. We've got to train our... Okay, honey. Um, (laughs) Marriage 101 right there. Happy marriage to everything she says. Now, because my wife has said, not God, but because my wife said, train your souls to magnify what is true above what is honest. Let me explain that. 
we feel that when we pour out our soul and we talk about how we feel, we're just being honest. And that's a place for that. I'm just being honest. That's great. It's great that you're being honest. But being honest is not necessarily speaking the truth. This man on the front row taught me back in the 1980s, the facts are, but the truth is. The facts are, I'm wearing a black shirt today. That's a fact, but facts change. This morning I wore a red shirt. The facts change. The facts are, but the truth is. The truth is always the same. In Romans chapter 4, Abraham, the father of faith, it says that he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. That's a fact. My body is as good as dead. I'm getting old and I'm barren and I can't conceive. And there's this promise meant to be coming my way. So he faced the fact. Faith does not put its head in the sand. Faith can face the facts. But having faced the fact, it also goes on to say that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. I'm barren, but God is God. The facts are I'm barren. The truth is God is God. And He's able to do what He has promised. The facts are the truth is. And we've got to train our souls to magnify what is true above what is honest. We've got to go beyond the honesty of our, how we feel and start speaking truth. We've got to start speaking the gospel to ourselves. I say this every time I preach that there's two preachers in the room. There's a person up here preaching and there's a one in your seat. It's you. And you need to let the preacher in you out. Not to encourage me, not because I'm all insecure up here, but there's power in agreement. We need to hear our own ears speak some of these truths because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We've got to start declaring that I am an overcomer, that all things will work together for good for those that are called according to His purpose. Hey, some of you do well to stand in front of the mirror and say, hey, I don't care what they say about you. I like you. You're a good guy. Instead of saying, oh, it's true. Oh, nobody loves me. Everyone hates me. That's not true. I'm just being honest about how I feel. That's not the truth though. God loves you. Ah, oh, but I'm an accident. My mum and dad didn't plan me. That may, be, that may be their truth. But there's a greater truth. You are not an accident. God foreknew that you would be here at this time. You're not an accident by God's design. That's the truth. The facts are you were not planned according to your mum and dad. That's a fact. The truth is God knew. And we've got to hold on to these truths. We've got to hold on to them. Instead of all the other stuff that we hold on to. You've got to speak to your soul. You've got to begin to prophesy. You've got to begin to declare things that are not as though they are. That's what you've got to do. If we're going to manage our way through the fog of life. And my fourth and final point is simply this. We've got to refresh our soul. We've got to refresh our soul. What do you do to refresh your soul? 
What do you do that you enjoy doing? You've got to find something that you enjoy doing. Someone's clicking away there. It could be photography. For me, I, I love getting to the gym. People think I'm really disciplined. I'm not. I just do what I love. I, I just love getting to the gym. And I honestly think that, you know, without the gym, maybe I wouldn't be in ministry today. Because the gym for me is an incredible place where I can get rid of a whole heap of stress. I want to be honest with you and don't think less of me. I've gone into the gym wanting to kill somebody and coming out just too tired to do it. <laughs> just being honest. It's great to have a training partner that says, you still feel like killing someone? Yes, more weight. You still feel like, yes, more weight. You still feel like, Ugh. now we're getting somewhere. It's always great to have just enough weight to get your mind off all the problems and onto the focus that you need to lift the weight. It's what I enjoy doing. What do you enjoy doing? Because you've got to refresh your soul. If your devotional time with God has become boring, do something to change that. A friend of mine was saying, just a shake up, and he's a pastor, he's in ministry, he's doing it great. His church is growing but just to shake up his devotion time, this is what he does. He's, he's coupled his devotion with something he loves doing. And he loves gardens. And he loves the outdoors. And so before his kids are up, he's got his phone and he's just reading the Word of God as he's watering the garden. His kids got up early one day and said, Dad, you look like a 70-year-old man. In your thongs and uh, he had socks and thongs on, and he was watering the garden. And he said, uh, and he laughed about it. He said, Well, so what? Better that I enjoy than just sit there saying, I don't enjoy devotions. I haven't done that for years. If you're not enjoying your devotional life, change it up. Change it up. Don't just say, I just don't, don't just stop reading. Do something. Fiona's on the second row here. She said, man, she loves getting to the beach. And she was just telling us how often she's been able to get to the beach of late because the weather's better. And well done. Some might see that as a waste of time, a waste of petrol. But for her, it's what refreshes her soul. Just the bigness and the vastness of the ocean just refreshes her soul. I can't tell you what it is that you've got to do, but you've got to find it what it is for you. What do you enjoy doing? What refreshes your soul? How can you couple that with your devotional life? It's amazing when Elijah, who had had the most incredible victory of his life, and that's often when we are the most susceptible, had this incredible victory. All these prophets of Baal were saying that our God is better than yours. And he said, no, my God is better than yours. And, and they had this this worship off. I mean, they just had this kind of, not a dance off, but they had this kind of like, whose God is real? Whose God is true? And they said, we're going to build an altar and whosoever God comes down and consumes the altar with fire, he's the real God. He's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. He's the God of gods. And so some 300, 400 prophets of 
Baal just gather around their idol and from morning to night they're chanting they're in a frenzy they're cutting themselves crying out to their God nothing Elijah he's getting cheeky now with every hour that passes in the day he's getting confident in God he says hey guys why don't you shout a little bit louder maybe your God's on the toilet it's in the Bible you've got to sit it's cool and they're like, oh, it's getting madder. God, if you're on the toilet, get off the toilet. Come on. Just. <laughs> Nothing. Elijah builds his altar. How can I make this harder for God? Saturate it with water. More water. And when you put more water on, put more water on again. We're going to make this really hard. It's like 400 to 1. The odds are not in the favour of Elijah. Cries out to God instantly. Fire from heaven. Licks up all the water that's run off the altar. Not only burns the altar, it burns the water. It takes up the water as well. It's like, it's pretty cool. You'd think after that, he'd just be riding high. After this incredible victory, his soul is so overwhelmed and so full. Queen Jezebel says, if Elijah's not dead by evening, and he freaks out. You'd think he would just say, while you're at it, Lord, burn her too. No, he just runs for his life. His soul, he's just emotionally spent. Don't think that when you're past it, all your problems will be, no, it's just, Sometimes we're most susceptible at the highest moments of our life. And it's amazing the words that come to God, from God to Elijah. He's given food to eat and he's told to rest. He's so exhausted, God just tends his soul by refreshing him with food and sleep. He didn't say, read this. He didn't say, let me pour out more theology. He just said, eat and sleep. Because that's what you need right now. Some of you just need to eat. And some of you just need to sleep. And you need to find rest for your soul. We're coming up to the holiday period in December. A lot of people go away. But very few are going to rest. They'll go on holiday, but they won't rest. Holidays and recreation is all about that. To recreate yourself. Not to come back worn out. But to rest your soul. To tend your soul. We go on holidays. I find a nice little chair near some water, beach or pool. I sit down and the kids go, what are we doing today? I said, I'm doing it. (laughs) This is me done. Hey, We'll go out, we'll do some things, we'll do some sightseeing or whatever. But we monitor that with rest. It's funny when you go interstate or you go overseas, you feel like you've got to see everything and do everything. Don't. Don't. Rest. Sometimes God is not asking as much of us as we think He is. He's saying, just sleep. Just rest.
Hey, get some food in your belly. I know you're not going to do it, so I'm going to get some birds to bring it. Because when we're overwhelmed, we don't eat. We go off our appetite. And God's like, no, you need food. You need, you need some sustenance. You need some food. What an incredible practical God. Come on, musos, come up here. Who's, who, who are the people in your world that refresh you? Who are those that lift your head? Who are those that you can fellowship up with? A lot of the time we spend fellowshipping down, helping people with their problems. But what about fellowshipping up? People who can lift our heads. Who's older than you? Who's wiser than you in your life right now? And who are you listening to? Just a thought. In Isaiah 53, in closing, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Speaking of Jesus, it was a prophetic promise of the one that was to come. It was written some 700 years before Jesus came. But it was speaking of this moment when this Messiah Christ would come. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And it's by His wounds that we are healed. You could replace that word iniquities with anxieties. It could read, he was crushed for our anxiety. He was crushed for our stress. He was crushed for our hurt. He was crushed for our pain. He was crushed for our fogginess. He's a God who can identify with us in every area, in every sphere of our life. Will you stand with me this evening? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.